This morning I'm reading from Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his days will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who's on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, and one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing our series looking at uh, a central part of Luke's gospel, this biography of Jesus. And the part we're looking at, which we've called the road to save us, is the long journey that Jesus makes uh, ending in Jerusalem, where he will be arrested and uh, finally crucified. And during this journey, he does a lot of teaching about the nature of God's kingdom and the nature of discipleship. Many years ago, in the months before our first child was born, a number of our friends also had, uh, had their first kids. And as I was anticipating our first kid coming up, I spoke to, to some of the spouses and support people for tips. I said, look, I, I, I'm in charge of getting things ready and packing the bag and that kind of thing. What, what do I need to know? And I still remember some of their advice. One person said, <clears throat> oh, look, it goes forever. It went for about 16 hours. And uh, my feet got very cold. I was wearing thongs. If I, you know, if I had my time over, I'd, um, I'd bring some fluffy socks. I thought, okay, that's, that's good intel. And um, another person said, look, <clears throat> you're there all night. The hospital doesn't give you any food. You get really hungry. You should take some snacks. Oh, that checks out. Anyway, 
when Ruth finally went into labour, I remember it was a Saturday morning, uh, it completely took us by surprise. Uh, and we were in a bit of a flap and my mum was, my mum had come to visit on that day of all days, not that she knew, I said, oh, mum, you're going to have to go. And um, we're kind of buzzing around and Ruth's kind of groaning and I, I, I grabbed a shopping bag and I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> packing the stuff. Right? We get to the hospital, it was quite a quick labour actually and the baby was born not long after lunchtime. And finally, all the chaos settled and I was there with Ruth and our new baby in, uh, in the hospital room and I opened the bag. It contained two items, a balled up pair of socks and a bag of grapes that I'd grabbed from the kitchen. I looked across at Ruth and our new baby. I thought, I'm not sure this is going to get them through the next four days. <laughs> how, could, how could I be so unprepared after nine months of pregnancy? Jesus today teaches about preparedness for a foreseeable event. A foreseeable event. And I'm going to make two points this morning. The present kingdom and the future kingdom. The present kingdom and the future kingdom. Firstly, the present kingdom. Speaking about the kingdom of God is one of Jesus' great themes. You read those gospels, he returns to this again and again as, as a, the big category in which to understand who he is and what he's doing. But when we hear those words, the kingdom of God, we need to have a sense of what his first hearers might have understood by that term. Because Jesus is speaking to a nation whose, whose glory days, I speak literally here, were 1,000 years behind it. This was Israel. Their glory days were 1,000 years ago. In Jesus' time, they were a small nation, they got beaten up by their enemies, and they were ruled by a committee that was chaired by the high priest. But they all knew that they had had glory days when they hadn't been run by a religious committee, when they'd been a, a great kingdom led by powerful and internationally respected kings. And they opened their Old Testament and there were promises there that God would establish his kingdom. Which was widely understood to say, to mean that he would restore the kingdom of Israel. I mean, after all, they were his chosen people, so it all aligns. He'd restore the kingdom of Israel. Probably by, by sending a mighty new king. Their word for this was the Messiah. And that's what's going on here when <clears throat> we, we see in Luke 17, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. This is a pressing question for them. They're saying, when will God glorify himself by, by raising us up as his people among the nations? When will this great, when will this great geopolitical event finally come to pass? And Jesus' answer was not what they were expecting. He says, no, the, the, kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven is not a, a geopolitical event. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's saying, it's not that kind of kingdom. You can't, 
You can't locate it on a map. It's not like the kingdom of David back in the day, which had national borders and a palace and a coronation ceremony. But then tantalizingly, he says, actually, it's not, it's not even a future thing. It's present. It's already here. And indeed, it's among you. It's in your midst. And what he means is <clears throat> that God's kingdom, rightly understood, has, has already arrived. It has commenced in Jesus' arrival. Jesus, after all, is the Messiah. He is the king. He brings the kingdom with him in his, in his person, in his life, in his teaching, in his ministry, in the signs of God breaking in and overthrowing the powers of, of uh, sin and death and spiritual oppression. And therefore, the kingdom of God is, is right there in their midst. It's available for those who, who, who repent and entrust their lives to Jesus, who become disciples. They can enter the kingdom. And he's, he's said things in similar terms along this journey toward Jerusalem. Back in verse, uh, chapter 11, he, he performed an exorcism. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed. And here's how Jesus uh, explains what's going on. <clears throat> he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying this is happening in real time, this kingdom of God. These are glimpses of the fact that it's present. You see the arrival of God in Jesus and his work. And so there's a couple of things to latch onto here in, in Jesus' teaching. He's saying, if you don't understand the nature of the kingdom of God, you will look for it at the wrong places. You might look for it in a, in a great work of social reform, or you might equate it with church or something like that. It is to be encountered in Jesus. But secondly, he's saying, it's not a future thing, it's a present thing. You enter it now by becoming a disciple of Jesus. You enter the kingdom, if you like, by going to the king, by becoming a Christian. Well, that's his initial explanation, but as Pat rightly pointed out, he speaks to two different groups of people. His audience for this teaching is the Pharisees. These are people who really don't have a, a clear grasp of what the kingdom of God is. But it goes on. He changes audience and he changes message. He says, then he said, no longer to the Pharisees, but to his disciples. In other words, these are those who have already encountered the kingdom by becoming his followers. And for them, he speaks not in, in general terms about the nature of the kingdom, but quite specifically about the future kingdom, its culmination, its fulfillment. And this, this ought to attract our attention because most people who come to church at 10.30 on a Sunday morning would already say, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And so this teaching is for us, for those who live between the arrival of the kingdom and this future culmination point. He says, it's possible, a bit like me as an expectant father, it's possible to know it's coming, but to still get it badly wrong, to still be unprepared. What does Jesus say about 
the kingdom finale. He says, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go off running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes, lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he's saying this future kingdom, unlike the, the present kingdom, It'll be as obvious as lightning. You don't have to ask where it is. But also, perhaps bafflingly for them, for his disciples, he says, the king must suffer if there is to be a kingdom finale. The king must suffer. And having introduced it like that, he then gives a a very, I think, powerful mini-sermon to his disciples. He says, basically, there are, there are two ways as a disciple, there are two ways in which you can live your life. You can live as though the kingdom is coming, or you can live as though the kingdom is not coming. And as a Christian, this is the most important decision you make. And even that's not putting it quite right, because it's not just a decision. It's, it's countless daily and weekly and monthly decisions. It's an orientation, it's a whole posture that you adopt. And he says it's crucial. And he gives two illustrations, both from the book of Genesis and both both confronting. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People are eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came, destroyed them all. This is the story of Noah back in Genesis uh, 6 through to 8. Because Noah hears and believes God's warning about this great coming day, he becomes a complete oddball in his community. He lives in the light of this wildly implausible disaster that he's convinced is coming. Meanwhile, all the same people are doing sane people stuff, the normal priorities. Food on the table, family life, getting married. But it turns out that's a life and death decision, whether to do just the regular sane normal stuff or whether to live in the light of this implausible disaster. And he goes on, he gives a second example. It's a parallel to the first, it's just a few chapters later. In the book of Genesis, he says, Jesus says, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Again, this is from Genesis 19, this story. This man Lot, he has been persuaded that a great judgment from God is coming. And he, he does what any compassionate person would do. He, he starts to warn people. But his, his warnings, people hear what he's saying, they think this is completely comical. In uh, Genesis 19, <clears throat> it says, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law 
who will pledge to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy this city. Sansa and all thought he was joking. <laughs> and, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, more fool them. But we, we're, we're similar. We have, in our, in our cultural setting, we have people who are our own equivalents of Noah and Lot. People who live their lives in the light of improbable disasters. We think they're hilarious. We call them doomsday preppers. We watch them on TV. They're as nutty as can be. Look at those guys with their gas masks and their <laughs> tins of beans. We think, we, we think these people are ruining their lives in order to safeguard themselves from something that we all know is never going to happen. Though Jesus goes on. Sorry, Genesis. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities, the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. If you're hoping I'm going to explain this, I have to disappoint you. I became a pillar of salt. I don't know what that means, but it's something bad. <laughs> It's saying she was destroyed. She hesitated. She had a momentary each way and was destroyed. And so Jesus gives these two examples, Noah and, uh, and then Lot with the destruction coming. And he extends that metaphor into a model for Christian behavior. He says, on that day, no one who's on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them Likewise, no one out in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. He's saying if the disaster was coming, you flee. And more than that, it's fundamentally an individual thing that has to be done. You must save yourself. On that, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. Maybe he has in mind his sons and his uh, sons-in-law and his daughters. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together, one taken, the other left. And his point is that the kingdom of God, it's a, it's a present reality, but it has this great future finale, this decisive point. In the present, it's here in Jesus, anyone can come to him and be saved. But in the future, it is decisive, it culminates in judgment, and, and it's, it's in or out. Well, how should we apply these things to ourselves? Jesus has two categories of listener for his teaching in this section, and he has two messages, one message for each group. And in the same way, taking, taking uh, the terms given to us in the Bible, it, in church on a Sunday, there, there'll be two categories of people. And we rejoice in this, by the way. That, that on a typical Sunday, there are people who say, look, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Christian, but I'm open mind. I want to understand it more deeply. I'm thinking it all through. If that's you as you sit here this morning, I'm so glad you're here. You're in the right place. And if that's you, that's more the position perhaps of the Pharisees who are saying, look, just help me understand this whole kingdom thing. What is it? And Jesus' answer to you is an invitation. He's saying the kingdom of, the kingdom of God is right here. It's available to you by engaging with Jesus. 
You don't enter it by entering the doors of St. James, <laughs> but rather by coming to the King. If Jesus is the Son of God, if the, if the rejection and suffering that he predicts here, which came true at Easter, if it is real, then he is the way to God's kingdom. The key, the key to encountering God's kingdom is not what happens to you when you die, but what happens when Jesus rose. That by coming to him, you can come into the kingdom. And if that's you and you're looking for a next step, I'd, I'd commend the Renew course that I mentioned earlier. It starts in a month or so as an opportunity to explore these things and come to clarity on it. But the second category he speaks to are not the Pharisees who, who uh, are ignorant of what he's discussing, but his disciples, those who are already following Jesus. And whereas he gives an invitation, if you like, to the Pharisees, to the disciples he gives a warning, a warning to live in the light of God's future kingdom. Jesus sets out basically two models of life, two approaches to life. And you see this in the stories of Noah and in Lot. You've got the eating, drinking, buying, selling, marrying approach to life. And then you've got the ark building, warning, sharing, flee for your life approach. They're the two approaches. Which are you? It's a prickly question, I understand. And my concern, I think, my concern is that we've kind of invented a third, which is that eating, drinking, buying, selling, marrying, giving in marriage, but still somehow escape the danger approach. That's our preferred approach. If that option existed, Jesus would not have given this teaching. The question for us is, are, are you living in the light of Jesus' return and his kingdom? Let me, let me put it differently. This is maybe a, maybe a more useful diagnostic question. How much of your life only makes sense if Jesus returns? How much of your life only makes sense if Jesus returns. Because if your life, if you're a disciple and your life makes total sense whether or not Jesus returns, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. And I have to say, I feel as though I have an advantage here because I'm a minister. I mean, 25 years ago, I make this option to just as a, as a professional decision. Or someone like, like Nathan who says, I'm, I'm going to take Maki and the boys and we're going to go off to Japan to tell people about Jesus. If, if you're in ministry, in a sense you're committed. It only makes sense in the light of Jesus' return. But I have to say, for the rest of you, it, it's much, much harder. Much harder, I think, to get this right. It's a greater challenge. But the choice is no less serious. Is Jesus' return the thing that ultimately makes sense of the way you've put your life together, your decisions about all the things, the time and the money and the, the family life and the professional decisions and the investments and all the things? 
is there, is there an aspect of your life that looks as weird as Noah? Are there things that come out of your mouth that sound as bonkers as Lot? Because the Christian answer has always been yes. Yes, there are areas we overlap, but in this regard, we are distinctively Christian. And can, again, if I, if I was going to give a next step to take on this, an opportunity to do a bit of a reflect and a reset might be next Saturday's prayer retreat. You might say, look, why don't I sign up for the prayer retreat and just set aside three hours, just reflect before the Lord. Do a bit of a, 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 re, a reframing and a relaunch. If you know the risen Lord, and I rejoice that you do, then you know he will keep his promise to return. Don't, as it were, be found in the, in the delivery room with a shopping bag <laughs> containing socks and grapes. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have risen and that you rule and that you will return by your Holy Spirit. Move us to live our lives in the light of that great and exciting coming day. Amen.